0: and welcome to Zocalo Public Square. I'm Judy Campbell. I'm a public radio producer at KQED in San Francisco. And I'm excited to be here with Jessica Garrison, who's the Senior Investigations Editor for BuzzFeed News. She was previously a journalist at the LA Times for over a decade. Jessica is also the author of The Devil's Harvest, a a Ruthless Killer, a Terrorized Community and the Search for Justice in California's Central Valley, which was released this August. In one sense, The Devil's Harvest is a true crime story, chronicling a hitman who claims to have killed three dozen people over several decades, but it's also much more than that. It's also the story of the cultural forces that have shaped the Central Valley and the effects of decades of neglect on an overlooked community. And it's all aimed at addressing this question that's at the heart of the book, and I'm I'm quoting here from the book. Uh, How could someone get away with murder after murder? for more than 30 years while living in a sleepy, close-knit farm worker town where everyone knew everyone else. So Jessica Garrison, uh, congratulations. It's a fascinating book. Um, and uh, so tell us, how did you get into this story? What 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 drew you to it?
1: Well, first of all- And what did you. you hear about him? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and um, for asking that question. Um, so I heard about that story. I heard, I first heard of Jose Martinez. Um, in the, um, uh uh-oh, are we frozen? No, sorry, I live in fear of you. We were slightly frozen Um, in the, but now we are unfrozen. Um, Anyway, I first heard of the story in probably the spring of 2014. Um, I was still at the LA Times, and I was working um, as the morning assignment editor, which is a job I was quite unsuited to, because I am not, a morning person at all. Um, and so I came in every morning in a kind of a zombie sleepy state. Um, and that job is sort of like being the air traffic controller for the state. Like it's, you kind of come in and you have to make sure that you have reporters everywhere that you might need to have them for story. Um, which, so it's like maybe not a job you want to do if you're exhausted, but anyway, I came in and I would kind of come in with two cups of coffee and sit there and look at the wires. Um, to get a sense of you know what's happening in the world and i remember sort of holding a cup of coffee and reading the wire and seeing that a contract killer um was being extradited from alabama to california and i can't i don't remember if they said the town that he was from in the San Joaquin valley Um, they might have and i remember thinking how on earth could you kill that many people and live in such a tiny town, and not get caught for 30 years, um, and so I took a little bit more coffee, and I called the Fresno bureau chief, and woke her up, and said, "Bad news! You have to get in your car, <laughs> drive to Tulare County." Um, and you know, the LA Times did the the reporters at the LA Times did a, did a pretty kind of fantastic breaking news story on the case that was just sort of like, "Here's this guy; he's being charged with you know nine murders in California." Um, And then shortly after that, I left the LA Times and went to work at Buzzfeed. And I kept thinking about this case and sort of in the way that you do, I think a lot of reporters have sort of stories in the back of their mind, like what, I wonder if anyone ever did the kind of deeper look at what really happened here. And periodically I would check and nothing. And then one day I was kind of between projects and I checked and there was still kind of no big story on it but well, I noticed that Mr. Martinez was due in court in Tulare County um, and like that the next week. And I thought maybe I'll just go see. Um, so I got my car, um, learned an important lesson about how accurate the timestamps that Google maps gives you are, which is to say not at all. Um, so I was a little bit late to the hearing um, and you know, got to this hearing and and sort of watched this court case and just thought, this is fascinating. Um, and then shortly after that, you know, Mr. Martinez was charged in California with murders. He was also charged in Alabama with a murder, and then he was charged in Florida with murders. Um, and Florida has incredibly open public records laws. And so I called up Florida to ask for the police reports on the murders there. And the clerk in Florida said, Oh, do you want the California cases too? And I said, why, well, yes, I, I would, because um, you can't really California get- California is not easy to get those records. You can't get them. Yeah. I was like, yes, please. Um, so I got, you know, thousands of pages of original handwritten police reports from California going back to, you know, the his first murder was 1980, um, but there were other murders in there that went back to the 70s, and it was just- you know, I was a history major in college and it was like someone just dropped a history archive in my lap. And I pretty quickly realized, you know, this is an incredible story of a crime, um, but it's also a story of this place. And it, that's how I got into it. And it just, it just kept, you know, every, every sort of stone I unturned yielded more kind of fascinating things
0: yeah well, talk about the place so early mark strange name um it started with sort of an optimistic future, right and then it ended up at the nexus of just these enormous sort of international thing. drug cartels u f w is there um there 's just outrageous disparities of the of the super rich and the super poor right so I wonder if you could talk talk a little bit about early mark and what So, what was,
1: yeah jose martinez is he was born um near Fresno, but he grew up um, in this town called Early Mart, which is like a lot of towns in the San Joaquin Valley, which is to say, it's not actually a town. It's not incorporated. Um, and like a lot of these towns, it, it was formed kind of by speculators um, who were kind of drawing up settlements along railroads. Um, so it's, you know, on a railroad spur, running a railroad, um, and it, it it's what's called Early Mart because the um the produce grown there is early to market um and he you know it's a it's a kind of a in some ways classic farm worker town you know many of the folks who live there are and were farm workers um and you know many of those some of those folks not many some of those folks also got involved in the drug trade um and jose martinez comes from a family um who his stepdad was a pretty big Heroin smuggler in the 70s, which is how he got involved in drugs. Um, And, you know, then unbeknownst to his family, he also got involved in contract killing. And he committed his first murder for hire in 1980. Um, And then he continued to murder with impunity um, for decades before finally, you know, I'm not even sure he got caught um, before he was brought to justice.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that was his first murder for hire, but he had had murder before that, right? And the case of uh, vengeance for his avenging the rape and murder of his sister. And I just found that interesting because he, even though he was a contract hire, um, it seems like his attitude towards a lot of these crimes had this real mission to it, this sort of nobility to what he was doing that, seem maybe fueled by this first sort of protecting his family.
1: Yes. So he, as he tells it, and I think, Mm -hmm. you know, he's never been charged with these 1978 murders, um, but I'm not sure anybody doesn't think that he committed them. Um, You know, he was raised in part, or a very important person when he was growing up was his half sister, um, who he, you know, he really adored and who was kind of like a little bit of a second mother to him. Um, and she was murdered in 1978, and her body was left um, on the banks of the Salton Sea in Riverside County. And he decided that he believed he knew who, he didn't believe that the police really cared or really were really doing anything about that murder. And he decided to take matters into his own hands. Um, He decided that he knew who was responsible um, and as he tells it, he drove down to Riverside County, um, found three people that he believed were responsible and killed them. Um, and that, you know, that's, that, those case he was never charged with those murders. You know, that's a little bit of a, an open-ended mystery. Um, but, um, as he tells it, he then became, when he became a contract killer, he viewed himself also as sort of someone who avenged, um, the uh, you know men who did bad things to women, um, and you know there's some evidence in some of his murders that that was a factor. By no means all, um, but he did have the sort of mystique that you know he would kind of take bad people out.
0: Yeah, and that was, but he didn't. I mean, as you write, he doesn't ask a lot of questions about who he's asked to kill. He doesn't check. He makes a lot of mistakes, and as time goes on. He becomes, you know, the the murders become sort of more petty um, disputes over, you know, parking in, in his driveway, um, things like that.
1: I mean, there is one, one of the most sort of kind of hard to wrap your head around. I mean, I think it's hard to wrap your head around any murder, but I think one of the ones that is really just sort of like, what? Um, is that he murders a man for the alleged crime, you know, of parking his driveway. Um, and then the sort of, ex- you know, even more extraordinarily, um, he, he dumps this body in Orange Grove um, in Tulare County and then learns because it's a small community that the man's mother is desperate and, you know, just filled with like grief and anxiety about not knowing what happened to her son um and so he actually goes and moves the body so that it will be found um and even more kind of astonishing is that he murders this guy in his own in his own truck um the murder victim's truck but it's not actually the truck doesn't belong to the murder victim it belongs to his widowed sister-in-law and after he murders the guy he's like you know the poor sister-in-law like she doesn't need this. Like, she's really gonna need this truck. I know she needs this truck. Um, And so he actually goes to a car wash, washes the blood out of the truck not very well, is questioned by it, by someone else at the car wash, um, and sort of has the absolute presence of mind to be like, oh, it's my kid's strawberry soda. Um, And then returns the truck to the home of the widow who's rather in law, he's just killed. I mean, it's just an absolutely, you know, that murder is astonishing because you see both his sort of like, oh, I must care for women and the absolute remorseless, cold-blooded murderousness.
0: Yeah, all. an interesting, a weird sort of sentimentality. And then, yeah, but it's, it's very clear he enjoyed his murders and he has this real dichotomy, right? I mean, he's this family man who's so generous with his family so loved at you know in in court there's just such emotional stories that are told about how he saved all these lives he's been the protector of his family and yet he's he's a he's a killer enjoys it yeah yeah um so i want to talk about there's um you know there there's so much um injustice that's sort of at the heart of this and it's kind of an interesting time to read this story now because we've been hearing so much about over-prosecution of people of color. And a side that doesn't get as talked about, but is talked about often in communities of color, is the under-prosecution of people who are perpetrating crimes against communities that don't have much power. And that's a huge part. I mean, there you have some, you know, there are a lot of people, you have some great detectives working on these cases, but overall the story is really that he was able to commit this many murders because it was people, these were murders against people that no
1: one really cared about. I mean, I think, I think that was the thing, you know, there. this is, there are two things that drew me to this story. One is, it's just a wild story. I mean, it takes, you know, we go to Santa Barbara, we go to Florida, there's horses, there's, you know, <laughs> wine, there, you know, it's an incredible, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this story but the other thing that really drew me to it and made me think you know is that there you know why was he allowed to get away with this and when i started this this project um one of the first things that i did was i sort of called up uh, family members of people he had killed and to my you know, they were in a lot of these, you know, these very, you killed a lot of people. And, you know, the, there was a great deal, you know, the, the, there, many of these family members were in very different places in their lives. You know, some were um, quite well-to-do, some weren't, um, but they all had sort of the same thing to say, which is it really felt like no one cared that my father or my brother or my cousin was murdered. Um, And that they just, you know, this death just sort of slipped away. And, you know, you know, yes, in some cases, the family members said, like, the police really did work these cases hard. In other cases, they didn't feel like the police cared at all, but they just didn't feel like anybody cared. And, you know, that that's what really drew me to this, like, how can you get away with not one, not two, not three, not four, but murder after murder after murder after murder. And, you know, he was a, by, you know, in the early murders, he wasn't necessarily a suspect, but by about 2000, he was a named person of interest in a lot of these murders. And yet for whatever reason, and there were reasons, he was never charged and never kind of, you know, nobody did anything. And that to me was the most shocking part of
0: the story. Yeah, and one thing that was, I found very sort of chilling of the whole thing is his awareness of that. You know, I mean, I think you have a quote from him. You know, he said one of his victims, he said, well, he clearly wasn't very important because a few weeks after his death, they stopped asking questions. So it was sort of this feedback loop. He was you know, these were his victims and he saw that these were people he could kill.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's right. And I I mean, that to me, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but I think it, it it's it's true that the story really kind of underscores that you know the the our justice system cares more about some deaths than others.
0: Well, and there are also, I mean, there are so many factors that we've into this. And one, I mean, I found it interesting this that this is an unincorporated area, so they don't have police, they don't they have. have- Sorry. They don't have a, right, they don't have a like a police chief, they're sheriffs. And um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, like the difference between having a sheriff and who's, oh, no. you know, and how it plays into sort of whose needs are, are met, who is, as an elected sheriff, who they're sort of paying attention to.
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, these are, so, you know, sheriffs are elected, right? And they are elected by, you know, typically, the county um, you know, the voters of the county um, and so I think it's just sort of simple math that tiny unincorporated communities that don't you know have a lot of voters right because a lot of people that live in these communities um, are immigrants and cannot vote there are a lot of voters there too um, but you know, and certainly more than there were 30 40 years ago um, but I also think you know these are areas that tend to be kind of underpoliced. Um, you know, that it will take the sheriff 30 minutes to even get there. Um, And so, you know, they tend to be places that people don't look to police to solve their problem. Um, And I think, you know, the particular with Tulare County, it's also a place that has a a pretty specific and negative history with the sheriff's department Um, because during the grape strike, um, the sheriff's department was perceived, I think, Quite fairly as being on the other side of that fight. Um, And so you have communities that, you know, aren't, don't have a great relationship with the, with local police. The police aren't there. They only see them when they come in and they have, you know, to sort of make arrests and they have this history um, of, you know, real kind of violent oppression. Um, And I think all of that, you know, I think that's changing and I think there are people working to change it, but I, I think that is part of what went into perpetuating this.
0: Why is it? I mean, this is a place, there was a lot known about what was going on there. It sounds like, um, especially in terms of just the vast amount of drugs that were coming through and the inner, you know, the Mexican drug cartel. Why was there no higher? Why was it just the the underfunded sheriff that is dealing with this? Why wasn't there sort of, federal look into this area? Why
1: wasn't there, you know, FBI, DEA? I mean, you probably have to ask the FBI and the DEA. I, you know, I, I think that there are drugs everywhere in California. Um, and, you know, I think that these, you know, I can't really, you know, there were, the DEA was around. I mean, DEA was involved in the arrest of his stepfather in the 1970s. Um, but I think the DEA, you know, to look at the DEA, like they don't really view it, they don't deal with murder right? They deal with drugs. Um, You know, I think it's an interesting question, you know, Jose Martinez was killing people across state lines, right? You know, but so, but, you know, murder in the United States is local. Um, And those are locally, you know, each jurisdiction handles their own cases by and large.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, there are so many sort of underfunded things in this. I mean, part of the question you, you, you bring up the comparison with the Golden State killer, um, who was it was shortly after, I guess, uh, uh, Jose Martinez's court case to that that, um, that story got blown open and massive amounts of press, right? And, um, and very little. his case. And I mean, I I wonder how much the sort of the demo, I'm sort of curious of why. It's not like the media is usually accused of not talking enough about grisly murders. Um, It seems like natural fodder. Why why didn't this get any attention? I don't know.
1: I mean, I I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I I do think, you know, the Golden State Killer, it's not a perfect comparison, right? But the Golden State Killer was, as in case anybody here doesn't know, you know, was this former police officer who was accused of raping and murdering women, um, often white women up and down the state um, for a long, long time. And I think that, you know, when he was finally caught, the media went predictably bonkers. Um, now, he was in some ways like a more diabolical criminal, right, because he broke into people's houses and like psychologically tortured them and then raped them. Um, but I also random. Right. He was killing white women, um, and I do think that, like the, you know, I don't have a perfect answer to the question of like why people didn't, you know, we are a state that loves to get captivated by serial killers, um, right? I mean, we've we've had a number, we give them names. Um, why this one never sort of captured the imagination? Like, I I think perhaps it's because of the victims, um, and. Um,
0: well, the victims I were, well, sorry, I, there might have been a small freeze. I didn't know if oh, you were done. I'm were so sorry. I, well, <laughs> I don't know where you lost me. Um, well, but no, I, just right at the end. You, you were saying that it might have been about the victims.
1: I mean, I, I, I do think it's possible that, like, you know, the media will go predictably bonkers um, if, you have, you know, in a situation where white women are, you know, perceived to be victims in a way that they may not if the victims are perceived to be undocumented um, men who may or may not be involved in the drug trade. Right.
0: And there are um, such huge, I mean, during this period, there are waves of various things, right? And one is Proposition 187 um, uh, of the targeting. Um, undocumented immigrants and services is passed is um, towards the end, right? There's, there's Trump coming in, um, you know, with rallies nearby, I think um, uh, about undocumented immigrants. I mean it seems like fear is a, a central part of this, and people being afraid to talk, to advocate them for themselves and sort of the criminal justice system also, and just basic rights and services, which are, you know, that, that a lot of people are really
1: denied, right? I mean, I think that's another thing about, you know, I mean, I really tried to make the book about two things. I tried to make the book about this crime story, um, which stretches over, you know, 40 years, um, but it's also the story of a place. And it's a story of a place that has been sort of systematically denied Services. Um, you know, we talked. We've talked a lot about police services, but you know, this is also a place where, in a lot of communities, there's no potable water. Um, where, you know, in, in early March, you know, one of the sort of most egregious environmental crimes, you know, in California was committed, which is that you know half the town, not half the town, a large portion of the town um, was kind of gassed um, with a pesticide accident. Um, which actually led to, you know, Early Mart. It's a tiny little place. It's given us Jose Martinez, and it's also given us one of the sort of fiercest environmental justice advocates in the state. Um, You know, but it's a place that, you know, just although it is, you know, in California, it it doesn't always feel like California because, you know, you you don't have water. You don't, I mean, you, you don't have kind of basic, municipal services, sidewalks, streetlights, you know, the roads are paved, but, you know, it's a running joke, you know, if you type in, like, early mart, and, like, potholes, like, you will be astonished by how much on the internet there is about people, you know, because the roads are just, and I kind of knew this, and then I drove my car, you know, I have a crack in my windshield because of a rock that flew up from under the road, I mean, it is a, it is a place that has, for whatever reason, um, most, you know, neglect, not had the kind of services um, that I think we've come to expect in California.
0: Yeah, and I was interested to see, I mean, it was actually purposeful, right? I mean, after there was a time, they you know, that it wasn't thought of as a viable community. So they were starved yeah, I mean, of, of services. Is that right?
1: Well, I mean, I think that was back in the 70s. But, I, you know, I think there are a lot of these little towns that just sort of sprung up um, and you know they don't have you know they they don't have water. Um, they aren't hooked up to the you know main water systems. Um, and I think the counties you know throughout the San Joaquin Valley have sort of struggled with what do we do about this. And when they don't when, they, when the when these places also don't have political power the answer to what do we do about this is very different than it would be if it was a rich unincorporated community that lacked these things. Um, And, you know, the answer has often been to like, just like, let's ignore it and hope it goes away. Um, But these are also wonderful communities um, and they are full of people who live there and love it. And, you know, it's their home. And so these communities have not gone away. Um, And, you know, I think I I would never want to suggest that, like, neglecting a community leads to a diabolical contract killer. Obviously, it doesn't. Um, But I think the book underscores the fact that, like, you know, we as a state really should should think about, you know, how we want to allocate resources in our incredibly rich state um, to address these incredible situations that we see in a lot of these communities.
0: So one thing that's really interesting about Jose and and Jose Martinez and the fact that you, the reason you have this whole book is that he confessed and um, he confessed and confessed and confessed and confessed, right? Um, Okay, why? Why do you repeat that? Oh, you know, it's funny. I was just repeating the same word over and over. I was saying he confessed and confessed and confessed. I mean, he really spilled his, well, not really his guts, right? I mean, it didn't seem like necessarily a remorseful thing, but why, you know, one, he talked to you, right, and, and he told all of this, why do you think he did that um, after um, years of, of, you know, keeping
1: it I mean, so the incident case, so, you know, sort of the, the inciting incident was that he did it for the reason that he does a lot of things, um, which is to make his family's life better. Um, and you know, the particulars of that are that he'd gone to visit his daughter in, in Alabama. His daughter is, um, got absolutely nothing to do with any crime, anything. I mean, um, she's just a, absolutely out of it and was living her life in Alabama. And, um, he came to visit her and while, and while he was there, she was trying to launch a business, um. And he was desperate to help her with this business. And she kept telling him, like, you cannot help, like, you're not insured. Um, And at some point, someone who kind of knew her said something about having a debt. Um, And Jose Martinez, sort of desperate to help, was like, oh, a debt. I know from debt collection, um, because he was also a debt collector for drug cartels, and decides that he's going to help this acquaintance of his daughter's collect this debt, which was not a drug debt. It was a, um, you know, a kind of a fairly boring business debt. And um, so he gets in the car with the guy who wants help collecting the debt. And the, the gentleman makes a terrible mistake, um, which is that Jose Martinez asks this man um, about his daughter's boyfriend. And the man says, oh yeah, you know, the boyfriend's okay. But you know, that blankety blank he's with, Um, and insults his daughter. And Jose Martinez- Not knowing that he was talking to the father. Not knowing that he was talking to to her father. And Jose Martinez murdered him. And um, then as he often did, got away, you know, was not suspected, came back to California. And then police in Alabama, eventually, they never ever thought that his daughter was involved in the murder, but they kind of made the connection that, you know, she knew the guy, and they were kind of squeezing her. um, And more specifically, they were kind of squeezing her kid, you know, they wanted to talk to her kids. And he was like, you know, I don't want my family dragged into this. And so he came to Alabama and said, yeah, I committed that murder. And while we're on the topic, I got a whole bunch more that I'd like to confess to. And at first police in Alabama were like, yeah, no, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, they just did not believe him. And then they started looking into the murders that he was confessing to. And they eventually called police in Kern and Tulare County and learned that, you know, not only was it not ridiculous that he was confessing this, but he was a suspect. Um, And so they began closing um, you know, he was charged at that point with nine murders in California. Um, and he confessed to a whole bunch more. Um, and and to, to me, one of the most astonishing things, on top of all the other astonishing things, was that even with him confessing, they still, you know, they have not closed a lot of these. Um, and they have not, even though you know, in some specific cases, he's like, "I killed that person on that date in that place," um, but they still have not charged him. So there's a lot more murders out there um, that he's trying to uh, confess to that are still open.
0: And there are, I mean, po- um, yeah, I mean, police departments are turning down; they they have too many murders to
1: deal with, even though. I mean, I think know, some it's that difficult. it's you know it's a, it's a legally complicated question, right? Because You know, in order to prosecute him, um, you know, they've got to, they got to charge him and then they got to bring him here and then they got to like spend all the money to do that. And if, if they've got no other evidence except him, if he decides to change his mind and not confess to it, they got nothing. And Um, part
0: of the original motivation, right, was to get, so that he doesn't stay in prison in the South. South, that he gets to come back to California, but he needs enough murder to be charged with enough murders in order to get sent back.
1: I mean, I think he, I think part of the reason, I mean, only he can really know, but I, I think he at time said part of the reason he confessed all these California murders, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Like one, I think was like, I'm done. I'm just gonna confess. I think the other reason was that he did want to serve his time in California. Um, and so, To be near his family. Um, But he did not count on Florida because he'd also committed a murder, a double murder in Florida. And, you know, in what, in yet another crazy twist to this case, um, Florida had a cigarette butt from the crime scene that they, for whatever reason, forgot to test for for a number of years. Had they run it in 2006 when he committed that murder, it would have hit on Jose Martinez because while he was never charged with murder, he'd been charged with some. Um, you know, lesser crimes. And so he was in the system, but they forgot to test the cigarette butt. And then a cold case detective ultimately tested it right around the time that he confessed to murder in Alabama. So he was, you know, extradited to California, pled out in California, and then extradited to Florida, where he faced a death penalty case. Um, and that brought us to yet another kind of extraordinary twist, which is that a jury in Florida. Um, Decided after hearing all about his life that he should not have the death penalty. Pretty shocking. I okay. mean, I think a lot of people in that courtroom were shocked.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and that was the testimony of the of the family and and also his his childhood, right? And, and yes,
1: his family flew out in mass to Florida and testified over several days, um, both about his childhood, kind of growing up. Um, in the middle of the grape strike and about um, kind of what a loving person he was in that realm of his life. So
0: you talked to him. He, uh, you wrote him a letter. He agreed to talk to you. Um, One, you know, vanity is that, did, did, did he want to tell his story? It was he,
1: I don't know. I I never know why anybody talks to a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think he did I think he did
0: want to tell the story. And what did you think? I mean, part one of the many factors in why I got away with it, some of it is just his, his charm, right? Um, you know, uh, at, at one point, even though the police knew that he um, had was involved in tons of things that, that they, they didn't have evidence for yet, um, but they made him a police informant sort of because he chatted with a police officer, right? Um, so did you find him charming and what did you, what did you make of him when you met him? Did it, did it change the way you thought of the story meeting? him?
1: So, I mean, I think before I talked to him, I talked to a lot of police officers about him. Um, and almost, you know, to a person they talked about, you would never ever think this man was a murderer. Like he just seems like kind and helpful and kind of funny. Um, And so, you know, I wrote him a letter and I never thought he would actually talk to me, right? I mean, I've written like a lot of letters to prison in my life. um, And usually you don't get an answer, Um, but he called me up um, and it it was, you know, quite, I think the the police descriptions were quite accurate. I mean, he's very polite. He's a very, you know, he's quite charming. Um, and he's also quite remorseless about having committed a lot of really horrible murders.
0: Um, I can't say there's a ton of sort of optimism in this book, but one one place that is, is this idea of, you um, you know, the, the, you have drawn a picture of a, a very neglected area with, you know, you talked about the pesticide drift and can, there are cancer cult clusters, there's undrinkable water, and, um, and in but in, in recent years, it seems, and then there were a lot of people who were scared to, to advocate for themselves, part, partly because of maybe not being documented, um, but in recent years, you've seen sort of a change I mean, it sounds I, like, and maybe there's some,
1: uh, some uh, yeah, go ahead. I should say, like, I guess it is a pretty dark portrait. I love this part of Tulare County, right? I mean, it is beautiful. Um, and, you know, there's something just kind of, I mean, I encourage anyone driving up and down the 99 to get off and go and have like delicious food in early mart and look at, um, you know, particularly in the, in the winter, you can kind of look out across the fields and see the Sierra spike up with these like, you know icy white peaks it's beautiful um it's where our food comes from we should all care about this place but yeah i I think it is a place it's a it's a vital part of our state like i said it's where you know any anybody here if you ate a fruit or a vegetable today it probably came from the valley um so we're all connected to it and um you know it's a it's a vibrant place and i think there are a lot of people who live there who you know have always but are still now Um, trying to make their community like a better, you know, more just place, which I think is true everywhere. But, you know, in in what we've seen in recent years is like a lot of kids of farm workers who, um, you know, in some cases have gone to school, um, to college and come back and said, you know, why? Why should should we not have, you know, drinking water? Why should we not have good schools? Why should we not have parks? Um, And are really kind of working to Make that happen, um, and I think that you know I tried to really kind of tell some of those stories in this book too.
0: Yeah, um, I, I I found that a um, um yeah, uh, uh, it, it was a it was a great um, part of this book um, that uh, you know, and, and in communities that before that success often meant leaving. Now, more people are are staying and investing in their community. Well, I want to thank you so much, um, we have to close now, but thank you, Jessica, for a great conversation. Congratulations on publishing an important book. Um, and to everyone watching, thanks for joining us. You can um, visit org for a summary of this talk, additional writing, and more upcoming conversations. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.